0: Greetings
1: one and all, and welcome to Moments That Rock. A proud member of the Pantheon group of podcasts. I'm your host, Tony Mike Leadis. I spent three decades working in the music industry, running my own PR company, and working as a publicist. For you, too. The Police, Depeche Mode, David Bowie, New Order, Peter Gabriel, Genesis, blah 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 blah. If you want to know more, feel free to visit my website at www.tonymikeleadis.com. Each week, we'll strive to bring you a cornucopia of musical delights, all based around storytelling. There's archive interviews from back in my radio days with the likes of The Ramones, Steve Wimwood, The Cramps, U2, etc., etc. we also have some great stories from some industry insiders. There's a whole bunch of rock stars who work behind the scenes, and they have some great stories. Insider Insights takes you inside their world for their stories and their rock star moments. And today, we have Malcolm Gary, Part 2. Just to remind you, well, Part 1, you can go back into the archives of Moments That Rock and find the first part of the interview with Malcolm Gary. And it's well worth listening to, because Malcolm is a real pioneer in music television in the UK. Been around for a few decades, been involved in some sensational things, of which we're going to hear more. We pick up Part 2, with Malcolm talking about the groundbreaking show
0: he made up himself, The Tube. It was crazy. I mean, the show was live, 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 which you think how dangerous that is. You're putting a whole bunch of, you know, rock and rollers and musos on network TV at uh, 5.15 every Friday night when, you know, they've had a a session in the pub usually beforehand. Uh, And there was a pub actually built into the studios which made life even harder or better, depending on which way you look at it, called the Egypt Cottage. But yeah, what happened was when we came off air at seven o'clock, whoever the the headline band was, The Jam or Tina Turner was the the best one. Tina Turner was supposed to finish at seven o'clock. She was still playing to the studio audience and for the crew at 20 minutes to eight. So it was like a... And there's a great shot of Annie Lennox in the audience dancing, you know, dancing away uh, to it. So it it became, I think one of the reasons the bands wanted to do it was we made it just like a gig. It was just like going to a club and doing a live gig. If the bands wouldn't perform live, as you remember, Tony, they weren't on the show. So that was a golden rule. And they had to come up the day before and do a proper full sound check and camera rehearsal. If they didn't, they weren't on the show. So it was just like doing the way we do concerts now at the Albert Hall or, you know, Madison Square Gardens or, or Ronnie Scott's, uh, but we insisted on that because it just you just wanted to create that atmosphere. And really, I guess it was a kickback, if I'm honest, against the Old Greer Whistle Test, which had become, you know, sadly, very dull. It was still playing, you know, it was still playing West Coast rock, at a t- in the middle of the whole punk phenomena. You know, I remember thinking, my God, you know, there's a revolution taking place, literally a mile down the road from where you're recording this show and you're ignoring it. And we benefited from that because they were all desperate to come up to Newcastle and do the Tube. So, you know, part of the reason we got The Clash, I think, was they hated Top of the Pops with a passion, never did Top of the Pops. But the very fact that that we were saying to the bands and the management, you've got to play live, and there will be a live audience, and you've got a sound check, appealed to them because they felt they were just doing another gig, um, and they were they were they were they were one of the best behaved and spectacular bands that I ever booked in my life. We got, and everybody said, oh god, it's a clash, you know, it's like the height of punk, you know. We're going to get added, added extra security for the studios. We had more trouble from Lindisfarne. <laughs> <laughs> they, were just, they were just great. And, you know, sat with Joe. Oh, my God, they were just so good. And they played a blinding set, of course. The crowd went bonkers. But, you know, if you look back at that, you can see um, a bit of it on YouTube. It's just like, you could have been in the 100 Club or the Marquis, you know, any of those kind of great London clubs. Uh, but no, you were in a TV studio in Newcastle. It became obvious that, that it, it had to be um, a, a much older youth program. So it came out of the youth department, Tony, uh, which they used to have back in the day. They used to be, you know, as I said, Janice Reporter, Andrea Womple were the two kind of pioneers. And then, you know, the broadcasters started having youth departments as well. You remember Channel 4? It sounds strange now. It sounds like something, you know, from Nazi Germany. But yeah, so it grew out of that. But then, the, you know, Jeremy didn't want that. He wanted it to be a wider audience. I mean, you know, we had the mix of talent on the show was so eclectic. We had Cliff Richard on the same programme as Killing Joke. It was one of the best shows. And I remember I remember Cliff saying, He used to call me Malcolm Malcolm, Malcolm. <laughs> They're very loud, aren't they, dear boy? <laughs> oh. Yes, Cliff. <laughs> They're quite loud. Do you
1: look back on those days and and still sometimes think how the hell did that come about? I mean, you had incredible support, didn't you, from your bosses there?
0: It was, it was. I mean, Andrea, I've got to, I've got to give Andrea one for massive credit uh, because she backed me. She, you know, she took a risk with me. I mean, I was a school teacher for God's sake, and she was just letting me do, you know, my, 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 something that I had a passion about and was. Arrogant enough and stupid enough, and you know, uh, uh, young enough to think that oh, you know, I could I could do it and pull it off. But the team, it has to be said, the team, as the team that were there, you know, Paul Corley, Chris Cowie, Chris Phipps, Jeff Brown, Gavin Taylor, Jeff Womfer, I had the best team I could possibly have got, and they were all they were all kind of mavericks. I mean, it was it was a kind of Strange hodgepodge of people, but every one of them had one thing in common, and that was an undying passion for music. And and I wasn't bothered about whether they had the right experience or had paid their dues or you know, you know, we were, were obsessed. I mean, Chris Phipps was obsessed with you know, when I interviewed him, he said, "I've got two areas of expertise, Malcolm: um, heavy metal and reggae." And I said, like, "What?" <laughs> what and he did he knew everything about both those genres and i I just said right you're on you're on you've got you've got the gig uh because i just thought that's what a great mix that's the tube to be able to book you know uh muta baruka on you know on the program next to uh twisted sister was just a joy and you know the ratings went up and up and up and we got more and more press and more and more support from the music industry Uh, And we started getting some really, really big names, you know, and and people would started to do. I think you know we kind of pioneered the idea of doing collaborations. Um, And then the other thing, which I'm probably most proud about, um, Tony again, it was down to the amazing team we had. Was the program helped discover some incredible new talent? Not least, Frankie goes to Hollywood. You know, we shot Frankie in a in in an S and M club. Above a pub in down in Liverpool docks, and um, I'll never forget. I mean, this is where They weren't signed. Nobody ever heard of them. It was you know um, brand new band, and uh, we used to do these little city films in Hull, and Glasgow, and Belfast, and you know Liverpool. And anyway, we booked this band called Frankie Goes to Hollywood, who wanted to sing a song called Relax, and I remember. <laughs> Every, the director had a PA, which is like a personal assistant. And at the end of every day of filming, the PA, who was a guy called Michael Metcalf, had to fill in this log of what what we did during the day of shooting. And he said, uh, "Whatever it was, you know, May the 10th or whatever it was, we filmed brand new band in a in an S club above a pub in Liverpool called Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Interesting lineup." One straight, two gays, two trannies, two dykes, dot <laughs> dot dot. Something for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean they brought the film back and I looked in and I just went, oh, this is, this song is extraordinary. And because we put it out on the Friday, Friday night while people having their egg and chips. And there were butt plugs lying around and chains and whips and God knows what n- nipple tassels. And um it, you know, you can imagine the reaction from the press. Uh, I was having my, my beans on toast and this filth came on Channel 4. It's disgusting. The producers should be home, drawn and quartered. <laughs> and, and the next Saturday night, I get a call from Trevor Horn, uh, who is another Geordie who's from, from the Northeast of England. And he said, Malcolm, that band last night, that song, have you got a contact? I said, yeah, of course. Why? He said, I. I, I It just blew me away. And because the rest was history. But there was a whole bunch of them. Madonna had her first UK TV on the tube. I'd been to a jazz club with David Byrne called The Knitting Factory to see this incredible saxophonist, whose name I've just forgotten. And anyway, it was red hot. It was a tiny, tiny little jazz club that David loves. He said, come on, let's go outside and have a a cold beer. We sat outside and sitting on the curb was this young girl covered in crucifixes, very little clothing on. And I said, Christ, have you seen her? He said, oh, yeah. He said, that's Madonna. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, she's going to be huge, Malcolm. Do you want to meet her? And anyway, I said, she looked scary. Anyway, we said hello. And she was, she was in her own kind of world. Um, but anyway, I get back to London. And I'm reading the, a copy of the magazine called The Face, which at the time was the Bible. The Tube and The Face kind of started at the same time. And we used, to, we used to do favors to each other. And Face used to write about the tube a lot. And we used to mention the face a lot. And anyway, there was an article about Madonna being signed to, to Warners. So I rang up the head of Warners. I won't name any names. And said, oh, my God, I've seen this girl in, in New York. She's stunning. I'd like to book her for uh, the program. And I said, we're doing a big special from... Hacienda and it just feels to me because she's a kind of clubbing phenomena in New York, she'd be great and uh, he said well that's as be, but she's an American signing Malcolm yes yeah, she's going to be in the country but she is a no priority act for us and it stuck in my head and he said if you want her, I'm not paying for her, she's got makeup and hair and dancers it's just, there's no point and there's no product and I said okay I'll pay for everything can I keep the rights? And he said, you can do whatever you want. So we paid for her to come up with her dances and, the, and the, you know, I mean, it was like one hair, one makeup. And Tainties owned that footage in perpetuity. Because going back to what you were
1: just saying then, Malcolm, about the faith Andrea won for hand in you, she was kind of like your A&R person. She could see something that you probably couldn't at the time in yourself and just let you run with it to make these amazing programmes. I mean,
0: the same woman discovered Anton Deck. She, you know, she, she basically backed Chris Evans. She, she was responsible for the big breakfast. I mean, she, the, the amount of talent in the industry, both behind the camera and front of the camera, that the people who owe Andrea their livelihood, and I'm, I'm definitely one of those. But she was incredible. I needed two directors, one for the studio, uh, and I knew there was a guy at Tyne who was brilliant at that, Gavin Taylor who was a real risk taker uh, and prepared to do you know, do things in a studio that nobody else was doing. But I needed a director to shoot all the films, not just around the around the country, like Liverpool and Hull, but around the world. Because with that kind of budget, it meant we could go to Jamaica, we could go to New Orleans, we could go to Memphis, we could go to Berlin. Go to, we did a film with uh, Culture Club in Tokyo. Uh, we took Dias Straits to Israel. We did a whole thing about black music in Paris, um, the kind of African influence, African jazz, you know, and I needed a director to do it. And I would interviewed about half a dozen and all of them I just thought, oh my God, they just don't get this. And there was a guy at BBC Look North who was Andrea's husband. And I'd seen what he'd done with these little films on like the local news. I thought this is really good. And I met him, he was an amazing character, amazing character. And I said to Andrea, I want to employ your husband. He said, you can't do that. The unions will go ballistic. This is at a time when the unions, basically TV was a closed shop. You couldn't get into television unless you had a union ticket. You couldn't get a union ticket unless you worked in television. And she said that it just, you know, they'd think it was incestuous. And I said, well, I don't care. You know, if they, they, you know, they can come and talk to me, not you, Andrea. And I sat down with the lads from the union and I said, look, You've got two choices. I either employ some ponce from London, who will charge an enormous sum of money, probably won't be uh, anything, certainly won't be a member of your shop, Uh, or we employ Jeff, uh, and if he doesn't work out, I'll give him a three-month honeymoon period, then we'll get one of the other guys here to do it. But I said, there's nobody I know in the building who can do what I want to do um you show me who that person is and i'll employ them but there isn't anybody and i I managed to win the argument and because jeff ended up picking up countless awards for his film and he went on to be the designated director against scorsese to do the beatles anthology which took him six years but it was the definitive the definitive documentary series on the history of the beatles but you know and he was employed by the beatles so you know um and Jeff's got on. We, we worked together recently on a programme on the history of Ready Steady Go, would you believe? Wow. Uh, just recently for the BBC, and it, it got a terrific audience, and Jeff did a brilliant job on that.
1: You've been listening to part two of our Malcolm Gary in our Way Back Then section of Moments That Rock. Over the coming weeks, you'll be able to hear Malcolm tell his story of Red Rocks, where he took his crew out and was involved with one of the greatest music films of all time under a blood red sky insider insights is a regular weekly feature in moments that rock it's where we talk to behind the scenes people in the music industry and let them share their stories more next week we'll be right back after we hear from our sponsors with an interview with Morrissey in the early
0: 1980s. Yes, that's very old. And I have to
1: confess to personally, really looking forward to all these uh, other YouTube programs, of which Neil's story will start us off with a story about taking a journalist over to Ireland and then to a gig in the UK to watch them play, to nine people, if I remember rightly. It's hard to believe, really, but when you go back all those years, we're talking like 41 years ago now, uh, when the band obviously were clearly nothing. And uh, to hear those stories really kind of, you know, I don't know, it makes me tingle, because I don't really sit there in stupid nostalgia too much, but I am now, I'm indulging. So we're going to indulge more. Malcolm Gary's um, programme, really, devoted to um, the making of Red Rocks, will be kind of um, part three, but part two will be Mark Radcliffe talking about the first gig we went to on the 31st of May in 1980, when they were third on the bill. And uh, that's the three enjoyable program as well. They're all good. Uh, there's Dave Robinson as well, who was the managing director of Ireland around the Unforgettable Fire, when it really did take on a whole new lease of life. He put together the large posters that went around all over the UK, uh, 60 by 40. And Under a Blood, blood, under a blood Red Sky um, was a cheap album. Um, but it was pro- promoted like a, like a well, dare I say, a proper album. So it became hugely successful because it was cheap. But it was a great stepping stone. And uh, then what U2 did in the 80s really is legendary. But for now, I'll be quiet because this programme hasn't finished yet. Mark Radcliffe, who I mentioned, who will be on next week talking about uh, his first time, oh, our first time actually, when we went to see U2. Um, but meanwhile, this is an interview they conducted with Morrissey shortly before the release of The Queen Is Dead album in... Um, Was that
4: 82? Early 80s, whatever. Mark
1: Radcliffe talking to
4: Morrissey. What about the press reaction to this, which has seemed to be somewhat hysterical?
3: Yes, it is hysterical, but it's usually always hysterically bad. It's never really very um, supportive towards the group, which confuses me. I think the press, when they report things in a very hysterical way, can actually provoke things and continue them. They say I'm an anarchist, and they say very strong things about me which aren't true, but because I'm such a such a generally uh, gentle person. Uh, I think it confused them. If I was a very, very ostentatious, arrogant person um, away from records, away from the stage, I think it would all fit in quite uh, sensibly and it would make some sense. But because I'm not, I think they get slightly um, uh, confused by the whole thing. Do you, I mean you've done a lot of interviews and a lot of talking to the press.
4: are you now bored with it and start to lie a bit? I'll, I'll tell you why, because I read uh, a long interview with you in The Melody Maker, which described your younger years in Manchester. Now, I had younger years in Manchester, and I know Manchester pretty well, but reading your description of it was like reading something about a foreign land.
3: Why? Why?
4: Because I just never encountered (laughs) half the things you did. I mean, did you have that strange a childhood, or did I have a strange uh, childhood?
3: Or was it lies? Lots of it was lies. Lots of it was total fabrication, not by me, but by the writer in question, who was also from Manchester, and who was raised in Manchester, etc. But so there was some fabrication. But, um, no, largely, I mean, large blobs of it were quite true. Quite true.
4: So you don't regard your past in Manchester with much affection?
3: Yes, I do. Some affection, not uh, too much affection. I mean, there were were very stark, very strange things. But with some affection, obviously, yes. But I'll admit that most of what was written in that particular piece seemed very dark and dooming. I mean, one of the reasons why we have to move to EMI is for financial reasons, not that we want more, but just that we want some, we've made lots of records which have done really well and we've never seen any money for them. And we've never, ever made a penny on tours, which have always been really successful. So really, in order to keep the group together in a sensible way, we do need some backing, which EMI offer. And when we signed to Rough Trade, they said, the music press said we signed for £250,000. We signed to Rough Trade for £5,000, which at that time just covered equipment. So, in essence, we really signed to Rough Trade for nothing. But everybody said, or the press, had said it was a hysterically huge amount, which is totally untrue. The same thing is happening now. It's just the way the press are, I suppose. I was very interested in uh, music, and not really gossip and hearsay, and and, su- and such things which are really seem to form the, the heart and the kidneys now of the music press. Uh, so, no, I was always interested in music, and not just really uh, barroom gossip, as it were.
4: People keep saying as well, the other great rumour is uh,
3: I can't see the Smiths staying together much longer. No, but people said that at the very beginning, even only in a small way, people have always said that. And I think they probably always will. Maybe, I, th- I think there's lots of people who even, if they like the group, they would like to see some uh, some disharmony. But there really isn't any, so there's not really much that I can say. People will, um, um, people will uh, gossip, I suppose.
4: Do you think part of the problem is that that you do get a lot of the spotlight, I mean, even over and above Johnny. And, I mean, I'm guilty of it as well. We tend to ask you about you rather than the Smiths.
3: Well, um, it's, is it a problem? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I don't call publicity. And so, this is the, the standard phrase about me, is that I do, is that I, I'm desperate for publicity. I'm not. If people didn't say a thing about me for the next 12 months, I'd be quite happy. So, I mean, even with The Queen is Dead and vegetarianism and all those other themes that that generally people think are um, uh, attention-seeking devices, it just really isn't true. I honestly don't care if people don't want to interview me for another 20 years.
4: Let me read you this list of uh, of adjectives about Morrissey uh, and see what you agree with. Arrogant. Scarcely. Eccentric. Occasionally.
3: Controversial. Practically never.
4: Self-publicising, we've covered. Worshipped and despised, we can handle these two together.
3: Probably true. I think that's probably true, yes. I mean, when, when I'm in public, people either jump on me for one reason or another. So that's probably true, worshipped and despised, yes, I accept that.
4: The Smiths do have a fanatical following.
3: That's the only word for it. Yes, it can be very, very fanatical, very fanatical, which sometimes can be a great responsibility, but it's very difficult to see any negative, um, negative um, strains within the whole thing. It's positive
4: positive. (laughs) You think an awful lot. I mean, you strike me as someone who thinks about everything you do an awful lot. Now, you know, when I was young, I used to fantasise that I'd be in a successful group. Did you go through those fantasies, which have now come real? Mm,
3: Yes, I did. I went through the very obvious fantasies about being a pop star. So I can't, uh, yes, I I can't deny that I did. And have the fantasies lived up to expectation? Yes. (laughs) They have lived up to expectation, but it's very, it's very odd. It's very odd to view many things from the other side suddenly. Uh, The other night I was in Brixton. We had played the academy and I was being uh, hustled from the venue and I was surrounded by all these people pushing me out and then suddenly in the corner of the venue at the backstage there was this huge poster of Mark Bolan who I used to worship and his eyes were staring straight at me and he was looking directly at me and it was... For me, it was a very strange, mystical moment. I don't know why. It was like as if he was almost, you know, staring at me. And um, I felt, oh, it was like a shiver down the spine.
4: Have you sort of created a a monster for yourself, being a, a sort of, I don't know, how can I put it, the thoughtful pop star in many ways? I mean, wouldn't it be much easier to run around and take 13 women back to your hotel room and throw the television in the bath?
3: No, that would be very difficult. No, I don't really want to make life easy, I mean, that's not what I'm out to do. I'm not really out to have an easy time. I think to make a contribution is more important to me, a significant contribution, one that's provocative, not necessarily in in an irksome way. I mean, to be provocative doesn't always mean to be, you know, violent or uh, revolutionary, but really to make people think that at least if you hate or you adore the Smiths, that they uh, they stand on their own. That's all, really.
4: How will the Smiths change now? I mean, obviously you added Craig, a fifth member, which has made a big difference, probably more so live in many ways. How will the Smiths evolve from now on?
3: Well, I don't really think about change as a very, very necessary thing. I don't really feel that every time you release a record it must have a different angle, otherwise you're you, you've stagnated. I would like to do some very, very searing ballads and very, very soft, um, heavily orchestrated ballads. So that's one thing I'd really like to do in the future.
4: Could you ever see yourself writing any songs with anyone else other than Johnny Ma?
3: Not really. I don't really think about that. It doesn't really seem necessary. Um, No, I'm perfectly happy. Very, very happy.
4: What do you think's the best song you've written together?
3: This is a question I I can never really answer. If I'm really forced to give an answer, which I obviously am, it's a song which was a a third track on a 12-inch called Stretch Out and Wait. Exactly. I'll stop when it gets um, uh, dull, when it gets because inevitably, obviously, with most things that you do in life, eventually they can tire or become routine. So perhaps routine is, is the important word. If it becomes routine rather than dull, I would stop and just do something else.
4: But if the uh, fans just dropped off and people got a bit bored with the Smiths, which undoubtedly certain elements of your audience were, and you were still going round doing it, but you were back to basics, going around the back of a transit van... Would you still do it then?
3: I would never, ever reach that stage. I mean, if the audience drifted away, that would be it, really. But even over the last few years, people have gone and new new recruits have um, stepped forward. So I think there is a little pattern of, of um, like, a changing of the guards every year. But uh, lots of groups go on for a very long time and they can be quite useful and um, productive. I think the Smiths will, really. And that's not just, uh, you know ostentatious and blabbering, I really think they will. But when it's all just routine and the same things are said and it's no surprises, then what's the point, really? If you're a strict vegetarian, should you wear leather shoes? Well, I think it's slightly different because if you eat meat, the likelihood is is that you eat meat every single day, so you contribute very, very significantly to the meat industry. Uh, I buy one pair of shoes a year, which to me is not a significant contribution to the leather industry, so it is slightly different. It's not the same thing.
4: You could wear baseball boots in the snow. Excellent.
3: More
1: rock and roll history with Mr. Mark Radcliffe talking to Mr. Modesty from the Smiths. That's nearer 40 than 30 years old. And uh, that was the most enjoyable. Like I said to you before, Mark Radcliffe will be back next week talking about uh, meeting you two and um, what he thought of them in the very, very early days. Meanwhile, that's about it for this week. Uh, Do subscribe, come back and listen to uh, other programs of Moments That Rock. Moments That Rock is available on all formats, from Spotify to iHeartRadio to Apple Music to Google, etc., etc., etc. And um, it is a deep dive into talking to uh, industry insiders as as well as artists from uh, some ancient interviews. Ancient's a good word, isn't it? Um, That's about it from us. So we'll look forward to seeing you with part two of the U2 Quadrology, if that's such a word, next week. Thank you and good night.
2: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football